0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Amanda Kramer, a musician and filmmaker whose credits include Paris Window and Lady World, the latter of which screened at the 2019 TIFF Next Wave Festival. Her latest is Please, Baby, Please, an arch exploration of lust, identity, and gender politics, starring Andrea Riseborough and Harry Melling as a 1950s bohemian couple whose marriage is shaken up when they're mugged by a biker gang. It's a little more complicated than that. It's available now on digital and on demand, and you should definitely check it out. Amanda picks Little Shop of Horrors, Frank Oz and David Geffen's delightful big screen adaptation of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken's off Broadway musical reworking of the 1960 Roger Corman horror comedy this time starring Rick Moranis as schlubby Seymour Krelboyne, a put-upon Skid Row florist whose fortunes change when he starts listening to a talking plant that demands he feed it fresh human blood. With Ellen Green as Seymour's equally put-upon co-worker Audrey, Vincent Gardinia as their boss Mr. Mushnick, and a string of high-value cameo players, it's a one-of-a-kind love letter to B-movies, 50s doo do-up, and the allure of old-school practical creature work. And even without the original ending that was suppressed for like a decade, it's still kind of a masterpiece. So go get it. This is someone else's movie.
1: Whenever you're asked questions like this as a filmmaker or as an artist, like referential points or or twin images or things like this, um, you're struck with a thing inside of you, I think, that all filmmakers have, which is the vanity of ego of wanting to seem like you're this elite mind, right? Like you want to choose the most um, profound and dignified film (laughs) or you want to choose this like epic lost thing that no one has ever heard of and you want to blow minds expand everyone's attitude towards cinema um and it takes everything inside of me not to just say a little shop fours <laughs> so i so i figured why um why even correct that impulse cuz it's the impulse so we are so little shop fours um one of i think the greatest movie musicals ever created, I think, one of the most gorgeous films of the 1980s, which is a very strong thing to say, and just genuinely a meeting of some of the greatest (laughs) uh, theatrical performances, uh, wildest production design, strangest choices, um, and just kind of Hollywood, like, wackadoos uh, ever. Um, And most of those movies that are like that, just totally flop and like, you know, like kind of sit on their own face. Like it doesn't work. Like not everyone was there. Not everyone was getting the tone, but I think little shop of horrors is like every person knows exactly <laughs> what they're doing there and they're doing it just at the right temperature, every person. And I mean, that's a sight to behold.
0: I mean, I'm old enough that I saw a preview screening. Incredible. Oh, it played. And I knew the musical. I, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the timeline was. I think I saw the play after I saw the movie, but I had the cassette and the CD of the play. Amazing. um, And that was where I discovered Hashman and Mencken. And you know, so I was totally braced when The Little Mermaid came out. It's like, no, 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 these guys know what they're doing. It's going to be amazing.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy, do they.
0: Yeah. But Little Shop is such a, I mean, I think it was, it it wouldn't have been the first mashup um, produced, but it was the first one I was aware of where you know they take uh <laughs> and now in like I, I feel like I have to roll back over and over again when explaining this thing because now we're swimming in IP right like the the idea of a of a do-up musical of a 60s like a 1959 1960 horror movie would not be out of the out of place now there's probably a version of bucket of blood out there that someone is prepping after little I, shop
1: I promise you there is yeah
0: <laughs> but at the time it was so Weird. I think I read about it or heard about it. I, I definitely bought the cassette blind and just listened to it and was delighted, um, like from beginning to end. I, I had the whole the whole show in my head, all, every song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little too young to um, to be able to to stage it in high school. You know, like our our high school musical didn't get to be a little shop because it was just too soon. But <laughs> yeah. oh my god, I would have been Seymour. Like I would have totally gone for it.
1: <laughs> Oh, I would have loved to just be inside of Audrey too. I mean, that's my that's my attitude for acting, but um I you know, I think with a movie like that um you know, it starts off as this thing that Hollywood just wants. They, they it, Hollywood knows that it is what it's going to be, right? In its mind, it understands it's going to be big and splashy and colorful. And it starts with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. And Spielberg wants to produce it and Marty wants to direct it. I mean, what if fucking absolute disaster mess that would have been. What a terrible thing that would have been for everyone. We have a giant puppet. Everybody move. We're giving it to Frank Oz. Like, clearly out of the gate, it should go straight to him. By the time it's ready to be him and and David Geffen, um, the movie becomes already this almost like (laughs) this prideful kind of obsession with Being goofy and being uh, overt and over the top and it's not going to have, I mean, this is a cannibal plant and they're going to take all of whatever that would have been potentially, uh, you know, the darkness and they're just going to suck all of that out and it's going to become this outrageous family movie, um, which we don't really, I I think we don't really have anymore. We're like, kids can really enjoy it. Parents can have such a good time. Not that I make family movies (laughs) and I don't, and I'm not an advocate for them necessarily, but it's like this perfect moment of, can we just have fun? Can everyone just have fun here? Um, And, you know, the part of Audrey is supposed to go to Cyndi Lauper and she turns it down which is totally crazy of her. Yeah. Um, and and it goes to Ellen Green, who gives one of the greatest, I think, female performances of the decade. Uh, the voice is just unparalleled. What a choice. Um, what a choice. Yeah, like and this straight is one off of, these of things, the
0: stage, right? Like she had actually played yes. the part and, and they went back to her and she didn't modulate it, which I think makes everybody else match <laughs> her.
1: Yes. She sets a tone right away Um and you know, in a, in a sense, I think, and this is a little bit of what Andrea Riseborough did for me in my film, is uh, she chose something where the second the words come out of her mouth, and you, as the filmmaker, are standing behind the monitor watching, you're thinking to yourself, okay, we're going to commit to this for for months, like, and we're we're going to commit to this every shot, every mm-hmm. scene, everyone's sure, you know. Um, <laughs> we're we sure uh, we won't be able to go back. And then it becomes, I don't know, a signpost. It becomes this incredibly, uh, almost like how could it have ever been anything else, which is wonderful. It feels faded. Um, and I think that that's sort of Ellen Green's performance here. It's immediately faded. Then now everyone is doing their version Of like you said, matching her at that level and you get an amazing performance by Steve Martin, of course, who sings the dentist song that I think, I don't think anyone could ever uh, forget as one of the great moments of the film. I had it memorized. I would sing it all of the time. I wanted to think my dentist was singing it. I mean, I loved, (laughs) I loved it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, So my screening was unique in that I think about a third of the audience Knew the play, and the other two thirds had no idea. They just saw Rick Moranis' face on the poster, and this is 1986, right? So of course, this is the post Ghostbusters ascendance of of Rick Moranis. Which, again, you know, like somebody who's born and raised in Toronto and watching him come up on Second City, it's just so bananas that he became the movie star that he was for that tiny window of time for those ten years.
1: I know. Bring us back to an era when there can be a Rick Moranis, please. Yeah,
0: this is in no way a negative or a criticism of him. He was the best at what he did, full stop. Um, And even the scene he has with John Candy, the little SCTV reunion, there's so much affection and silliness going on. Like you can just, um, I was just talking to somebody about a movie that's recently come out on Disney Plus. It's called See How They Run, which, eh, like, it's an attempt to create an, an arch 1950s comic mousetrap yeah. who done it set around the mousetrap. I don't know if you've seen it, but
1: no, but heard of it. Yeah.
0: When you sit through it, you get the impression that everybody had the best time and none of that makes it out. Like it's trapped in the box. You, you do not enjoy it. You watch other people enjoying themselves.
1: Yeah. There are
0: the little moments of, 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 like John Candy doing whatever it is he's doing with his face and hands, like weird that, that whole thing he does. (laughs) And you just get this comic reaction from Moranis, which also somehow has affection in it. Yeah. It just feels uh, watching it again. I was just struck by how human this thing is when it's this giant artifice of a, of a 1950s movie made in the 1980s by people who vaguely remember it, but probably weren't paying much attention the first time through. Um, and, and somehow it feels like it escaped into the world. Like it was just this freak accident that yes. managed to to click and work. And at the same time, even as you revel in it, like it manages to have real emotion that the stuff that goes on. I think on, it's
1: very touching. I think it's yeah. an incredibly touching film. I mean, what's odd about the movie on a plot level, right? Is that, you know, you have Audrey who's being... Uh, brutally assaulted yeah, by her abused. boyfriend. Actively abused, which is played for, I wouldn't say comedy, but it's certainly not, um, y- you know, she shows up in a scene with like a black eye that is just painted black around. I mean, it's yeah. not, you know, it's uh, not realistic, but it is incredibly <laughs> uh, off-putting. And we meet the person who's punching her in the face and we're kind of supposed to like him or have fun with him, Um The entire that entire aspect of it is so there's an an outdated weirdness to it. Um, And the strange thing is, is that in our culture now, when people start to go backwards in time, which I think is everyone should stop doing. (laughs) I think everybody needs to stop that nonsense. I think everyone needs to live in their present tense and have some presentism and understand that their minds are too modern to function (laughs) as other eras. But it's like, this is the kind of movie where it had, and we should talk about this too, like it had no cult reinforcement. This movie is not a cult movie. This isn't Rocky Horror Picture Show, though I absolutely believe it should be. It didn't come back into the world as a thing that everybody loved and wore Halloween costumes of and and sang, you know, on and on. It's for theater kids, really, only now. And it lives so preserved in memory. But it's the kind of thing that the internet would be would wake up one morning and remember let's take another look at little shop of horrors you know she's being beaten it's like she is (laughs) and we can't deny that the film and the musical has a different trajectory though it's almost it's almost immediately and this is the thing about it that I love so much the, the preciousness of it it almost immediately on its face is telling you in the first scene that she's going to end up with Seymour and that she's going to have a happy life and that she's going to love him and he's going to love her extra, extra, extra. And this is the point in the f- the film in which like, we're going to begin to see their love concealed like in the past into a sort of congealed into the future and we know they're going to end up in a wedding dress at the end and it, it it doesn't keep us in the darkness it is a fairy tale from the beginning and we just know that happiness is coming so I always appreciated that as a kid I never thought of it as a movie that was like vaguely destructively about domestic abuse though I recognize that it is um it doesn't feel like that it it feels like you are about to go on an emotional journey of a woman realizing that the man in front of her the overlooked tiny little insipid (laughs) shopkeeper is going to be the profound love of her life um and somebody who is already sacrificial you know willing to feed his own blood to a plant that is her stand-in and um you know that he names after her. I mean, it's just it's it's a beautiful kind of fairy tale from start to finish,
0: yeah. I think. Yeah, well, and and Seymour is ultimately I think more of a masochist than Audrey is, which is the thing that yeah. is, <laughs> like floating unconsciously underneath the entire story. That of course they're perfect for each other, right? Like they're both <laughs> they're both givers, neither of them is a taker. Yes. And and of course, it's also incredibly tragic in the original conception, in the original movie, and in the original ending, which subsequently was restored. That it doesn't come to pass, right? Like they—they are—they are destroyed. They're thwarted by by this thing that's that's being nurtured in the background of the entire movie. Um, yeah. But the version that was released in '86 and the version that persisted is the one with the happy ending, and I. I I mean, I get it. I I understand the, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, the original ending at this point, yes. right? Like the Godzilla ending with giant plants ramped. It's, it was the way <laughs> it ended on stage, um, kind of. I mean, there was just a, it was a song and then um, Audrey came out and bloomed and the, the faces of the dead were like the actors sticking their heads through singing. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's great and shocking and, and neat, but it's a downer. And uh, Frank Oz's version is just so. His vision, as you say, it's just so bright and sunny and light and and daylit as opposed to the sort of disreputable black and white that the original movie was where it's just messy and ugly and you get, I mean, even this film has limbs just out of frame that are being fed to the thing. But, <laughs> yes. But the little red dots is as bad as it gets. Like, it's not really brutal. Even um, even Oren's death is clean suffocating yes. inside a helmet in a way yes. that it wasn't on stage because it's just he suffers in the in the song version of that and here if there's no song he just he just doesn't make it he doesn't um, make it and again my first understanding that you know sondheim wasn't the only one who could do incredible articulate lyrics for a murder ballad um because of the the stage version it's so sad that he left it out but um seymour has a little bit of like um uh, what was it though? The gun was never fired. There's the way events transpired. I could finish him with simple laissez-faire. And my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> and it's all yeah. in my head. Like it's never left for 40 years. Yeah. But, but watching it, <laughs> watching it in new is again, it's like this thing is sort of engaging with the kink and the punk and the stuff that was there on stage, the stuff in the off Broadway conception where you could be a little weird about, um, You know Audrey singing that she's dating a semi sadist and (laughs) and just wanting to be loved and that being her essential tragedy is that she just she latches on because he showed interest in her and then Seymour who's been mooning over her for however long they've known each other yes just missed his window and so this is what he turns to everybody has motivation like it's the thing that's missing from most modern uh, romances is that every single character is acting appropriately and doing the thing they want to do. Even like, even Mr. Mushnick who just wants to be profitable and doesn't really care how he's only offended when the profit margin is endangered. Like that's, yes. that's when he gets involved.
1: <laughs> well, I think like, um, you know, uh, uh, the struggle, I think sometimes with filmmaking currently is, uh, it reminds you that in movies and certainly ones that are set based on musicals where you have to get to it right the song starts immediately so when the curtain opens it's like you're in it and and people forget that without that you have to set your own tone Um, And setting a tone in the beginning of a film now is up for debate, right? There's the slow build, there's the tension, there's the... We start at the end with the dead body. How did the (laughs) dead body get there, you know? These, like, sort of trite contemporary notions of of how to begin. Um, Little Shop of Horrors is the perfect example, I mean, at least for me, (laughs) a reference point for me, of just beginning like you begin. You know, you have this gorgeous gorgeous set that i just think is like we are not doing enough to credit <sighs> backlots anymore they are absolutely gorgeous um uh you know with tisha campbell and 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 the rest of of her gang uh girl gang singing uh her twilight style like <laughs> great um you know just like the opening doo number as they're going through the streets and you learn how to watch the movie So, like I said, you learn that this is not a fraught movie filled with the kind of death that is chaotic and obscene. You understand that it's not a fraught movie that's filled with losing love and and being beaten. I mean, you get the tone right away. Like, we're on a journey, and the journey is a fable. And the fable begins on the streets of New York, into a floral shop, down the stairs, (laughs) into the basement, where this poor schmuck (laughs) is trying to feed plants um by the time you're at the point in the movie where he has to feed it his first drop of blood uh you're ecstatic and and this is a way to temper genre that is also just unparalleled and so much else it's like um a cannibal plant is very heavy and like that one (laughs) drop of blood is going to end up full bodies and that's like even though we're looking at puppets (laughs) the puppets aren't being fed puppets the puppets are being fed people um and you i think again like in order to make that a family film in order to make that like something children are watching and feeling excited by you have to keep it buoyant and that it's that buoyancy i think that makes the film a cult classic it's just like there's no tone rival it's its own thing and You know, gorgeous production designed by Roy Walker, who did uh, the great Stanley Kubrick films, The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut. And he here is just an absolute playground glory. Right. I mean, every inch of the set is like perfect. Um, Every prop is absolutely perfect. And of course, the puppets are totally incredible.
0: Yeah, it's so I'm gonna roll back a tiny bit. Actually, I realize I didn't ask you the key question. When did you first experience it? Like what was your exposure? Did somebody show it to you? Did you discover it?
1: This is my childhood. So like I'm maybe, I mean, I'm very, very young. When it comes out, I'm like four or five, maybe five. Uh, but I probably by seven, probably by the time when it's on home video, VHS home video, um, renting it and watching it with my parents and having a blast and not being kept from it as though it's adult material, Mm. Um, watching it and singing the songs and just like falling in love. And obviously at that time, uh, you know, children's content, I would say at that time is mostly like the Care Bears movie. There's the great chipmunk adventure, which is also fantastic. Um, (laughs) But uh, you know, it's definitely a time when, I think like the family movie as it exists now was not set. It was not codified and it certainly was not beautiful. And this was like be- beautiful. And uh, my, my dad at the time was a huge Broadway guy, off-Broadway guy. He loved theater. Um, my mom too, they saw a lot of shows and and that was a big part of why we were watching it because they thought the music was great. And uh, I would go on to be a theater kid myself, uh, not in acting, but behind the scenes. And so this is like just a sort of beginning of a love for what feels very theatrical and fake. Uh, The fakeness of this movie has stayed with me my whole life, you know, (laughs) like we're talking like three and a half decades later and I'm I'm essentially still trying to get that level <laughs> <laughs> of, of fakeness perfected in my own work um which is a which is a crazy thing to say but it's true
0: no no i mean i i absolutely get it your your movie is a celebration of artifice if nothing else like it is just about building that world and playing in it
1: it is certainly, and and these are the kinds of things that I think too really affected me in the '80s. This was a real style, like um, codified too by like Bo Welch and his work with Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the way that Edward Scissorhands looks, the way that I mean, I thought Beetlejuice was the, a masterpiece. I never thought anything could ever be better. And I still think sometimes when I watch Beetlejuice, I don't know if anything can ever be better. Um, And I'm sorry to Tim, but I don't think he ever did better. I, I think it's like the most beautiful thing ever. And to be able to create that kind of, like you said, artifice, that faux reality, that theatricality. And everybody is there to give the same level and tone and work together to create this world that doesn't exist this faux reality um it's very exciting as a filmmaker to watch now as an adult because i'm envious and envy i think is the best feeling you know it is it's like how how did you pull that off how so yeah, this era, I think, particularly of like Beetlejuice and Little Shop of Horrors, I'm finally sensing in it something that speaks to me artistically. I'm not um, like a kooky, wacky person in real life. I wish I was. I wish I was Helena Bonham Carter and I had like two different shoes on all the time, but <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm I'm a very like a, sort of a striking and plain and minimal and, and focused person. But in the art, I mean, what I see is just... Uh, it's like a painterly vision. Um, that that feels like lost to time. And so of course I'm I'm attempting to get it back, always attempting to get it back.
0: Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week I reviewed Sarah Polly's Women Talking, and I'm about to kick off my year-end roundup of the best discs of 2022, with my list of the year's best movies not far behind. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the SimCast Twitter account. How could I stop writing about movies? Come check it out. This is before CG, or it's just like there's digital in the world but not in these films and to look back now and realize that they're working with physical limitation like all of these things in 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 addition to being set bound and stage bound you have you know, the elevated floor because you have to hide the puppeteers and the machinery. You have all of this stuff in the way of reality. And so the fact that they choose both in this and in Beetlejuice really to go with it and just not even pretend, you know, reality ends five minutes into Beetlejuice once the car goes off the bridge. everything, (laughs) Everything else is surreal. Even the stuff that's in the quote unquote real world is still a bit arch and strange um little shop yeah we start with an artificial sun and an artificial wall and an artificial, like none of it is is there it's all i, I actually programmed um a series at harborfront uh, on on the toronto waterfront uh, of summer movie screenings called in uh, i think we called it invented worlds or something and it was all movies that oh, had cool. to be had to be built had to be constructed couldn't exist
1: did you play um, one from the heart
0: no, it was their family film. So we couldn't get away with it.
1: Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's the other one that I'm like, Oh, I mean, how do you even achieve something like that is the most gorgeous. So yeah. what did you play? What, what kind of uh, stuff well, did you play? Little
0: Shop was there, uh, which is why, I mean, obviously it'll always be, have a play. I will screen that for an audience any chance I get. Cause it's Amazing. just, it's so much fun to watch with a crowd. Uh, streets yeah. of fire, the Walter Hill film made love, two years earlier.
1: Love that movie
0: again. I mean, it's technically real because they shot it with real cars, real bridges, real. Sp- but it, like, the whole thing is is invented. Uh, Wallace and Gromit, yeah. Curse of the Were Rabbit, right? Oh, because, great! And there's your Helena Bonham Carter. Um, but there <laughs> yeah. were, we, we found some of it was a stretch, but those were the ones that just made perfect sense. Um, to to, Galaxy Quest, I think we had.
1: Oh, cool! I think we screened Galaxy yeah. Quest. I'm a really big fan um, of Absolute Beginners. Uh, which i also think that people should you know reinvest their time in it's very influential on me but also incredible backlots costumes hair makeup oh like the overwhelm of fakeness and you know just david bowie i mean it's just an absolute and people are like oh what a mess um and this is the other thing that i think is so sad now is there's such an addiction to reality in filmmaking and the real Um, and, you know, I understand where we've all come from. Right. I mean, I know I study, right. So I know why we like Verite and handheld. I mean, I know why we like all of these things, Um, gritty dramas, uh, but I don't know why these things can't live alongside each other. This film in particular, and this look is considered absolutely just retro it is a it's considered a piece of nostalgia and not because of the era but because of the way that it looks um it's not something that endured and that i don't quite understand it's like people don't want this anymore i don't really know you know like if someone was going to make a new little shop there is just no way that there would be puppeteering that would be the f- that would be the first thing to go
0: Yeah, it would be all CG. Maybe you'd use a puppet for the initial Audrey, just you know, the the under the arm thing, just to have Mm -hmm. a little sense of it. But why? Why would you even? I mean, there's, there's, I can't even cast it now. I mean, I'm sure you could.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) Timothy Chalamet would be there. That's for fucking sure. I know what a mess. But there's this great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll find out in Wonka. We really will, and then right, and then nothing will ever be the same ever again. But there's this great shot of if you remember um of steve martin and he's singing the dentist song and he's like singing to his patients and in in one shot you're seeing his patient with his open mouth um and then in the next shot we are behind the open mouth and the open mouth is like a giant almost snuffleupagus sized like the tongue is like this huge (laughs) and the teeth are spread apart and Steve is singing into this giant mouth. And the frame, the actual frame that we're looking at is a puppet mouth. Um, so brilliant. I don't even understand that choice. Like to know that and to have the foresight that puppets will be everywhere and that this will be our perspective. Um, I Again, like that would be the first thing to go. And that would be such a shame.
0: Yeah, and it also because it knows. I think the movie knows that "dentist" is the hit of the so- of the whole show. Like it's the one where it's a standalone song for a character who's really the antagonist, even after he's gone.
1: Yeah, the villain song.
0: Yeah, but it yeah. is. It's the chance to go completely for broke and have fun with it. And it took me three or four viewings of it to realize that. For that one, for those two shots, or the one shot of, of the mouth, there's echo in the soundtrack where <laughs> you're hearing the reverberations, and he's the dentist, the uh, patient is singing along, yeah. and it is just this. I mean, it's so completely freewheeling. He he decks his nurse. He's running around, snapping, like posing and thrusting and snapping his coat on, and and just every it is. It's not Steve Martin's greatest performance, but it, in that moment, it feels like it is. Yeah. And it was the only one. That was the only number when I saw it with a crowd. That was the number that got applause the second he shows up. The second it cuts to him, they burst. Because he's teased in the credits. So I guess people were waiting for it. But there was this massive wave of applause when he shows up on the bike. And then at the very end, when the song ends, there was another wave of applause. And from that moment, it just never stopped. It just played.
1: It's incredible. Well, what's also funny about that too is like the layers, right? Like, so we're on an artificial set, like we're on a backlot, but the first shot of Steve Martin, he's on a motorcycle that he's obviously not on. Yeah, rear projection. Rear projection, which we don't maybe necessarily even quote unquote need because we're already in a fake situation. They could just ride him through the streets of the backlot and it would look like the world we're already in. But it's another like distancing effect um, and a callback to movies of maybe potentially that era. And it's kind of beautiful. Like those those shots are kind of beautiful. I really, I really like real projection a lot, Um, but I I don't buy this. Like it pulls you out of the movie thing. I think it pulls you in. Um, And I think setting up worlds and being a world innovator and creator is, you know, I think what we all had respect for people in that era and we're all essentially still emulating those people like those boomers i think that created those looks people still say oh who is the new coppola who is the new spielberg who is the new um their legends never die but the reason why we loved them in the first place you know and frank is because they wanted to create new worlds they were inventive in ways that maybe the 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 filmmakers from before them were not, Um, they're not that dusty in their early eras. And this movie has no dust on it. You know, it it doesn't feel like that. It's charmed from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, to, to, I think I know why we respond to those movies. It's because that generation was the first generation to grow up watching movies And wonder and figure out stuff and and even reverse engineer their own tricks from decades of worship, right? Like you grow up with the films that Scorsese did, you know, like all the gangster pictures and the, and the, the serials and the, and the, the stuff that the junk, right? And you, you remember, oh, Bud Boddicker used to do this. And then eventually you recognize the repeats and the things that John Ford used to do, right? And so you steal them, but you, because you, you, it's like everybody. You would you would make a movie and you would just pretend you were in charge even though you had no idea what you were doing you had a little super 8 camera and you just the the confidence of getting involved and getting it messy and then you realize that there's a much easier way to do something when you're in your 20s and you're embarrassed
1: <laughs> at the
0: time you wasted right but that's when <laughs> that's where you learn that's where you actually figure it out what works for you and develop a style and you know the the best example to my mind is the way Raiders of the Lost Ark draws so heavily on the, on the Republic serials that Spielberg and Lucas worshiped as children, as children, right? But they love them so much that they couldn't help, but make the adult version of them in a way that other people respond to as well, because the affection comes through and, Yes. Little shop is doing that for not for the Roger Corman movie that it's based on, weirdly enough. Like it really mm-hmm. doesn't have much in common with those B movies, but for the worlds that they would have screened in, like for the time and the era and the moment and how there's transistor radios everywhere and there's music everywhere and, and all this all the signs are hand painted and there's no printing and it's all just it's all just naive in a way. That, is. That, resounds, that resounds with us, that responds. Yeah. Like Christopher it- Guest coming in and being so absolutely alien and Christopher Guest gets (laughs) no credit for that scene because he is so weird and on stage it's played by the same guy who plays the dentist in a different hat because they you know it's a it's a cast you only have so many bodies yes um but here you like let's bring Christopher Guest in give him the assignment of being slightly off and watch the single greatest interpretation of every line (laughs) of dialogue he's given He just—he doesn't blink. He smiles a little too widely. He's—he's he's robotic in his movements. There's no question that he is a different kind of plant. Yes. Um, and then he leaves, and I remember the, the crowd just going, "What? Who? What? What was? What was that?" And then you go back later, and it's like, "Oh no, that's the Count from The Princess Bride, or or Nigel sure. tuffman from Spinal Tap." And you know, <laughs> I knew I recognized him, but I still did I had no larger sense of who he was in, in like beyond Spinal Tap. But now it's just like, "Oh my God, they got everybody."
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the thing to remember is like these people are most of them are comedic, uh, what we would probably now call comedic geniuses. Right. I mean, through the lens of time, Mm -hmm. I think, why not say that? Um, I don't find this movie to be jokes like where you laugh, laugh. Um, This isn't like a movie where, you know, like where Steve Martin and Rick Moranis are giving jokes they aren't. They're they're performing so archly that it's hard to even be joke setups because it doesn't work like that. So really what you have is, yeah, it's naive um, in that it's like n- not a comedy. It's comedic and everyone is doing something comedic, but it's not like, you're not there to laugh, you know? I think you're there really, like, to truly feel wonder. It is like a wonder movie. It's a bit awe-striking. Because where the fuck do you even put your eyes? In every scene. <laughs> I don't even know where... you. It's hard to even know where to look. It, even, you know, in scenes when, when Audrey is... You know, making floral arrangements. I mean, every inch of it is just it's wonder. It's like there are flowers everywhere and there's Seymour and he's doing it. I mean, everything just is so brimming with life. And uh, it's a tribute to maximalism. And, it, and it's a tribute to, I mean, we're coming off of, I think, what, was he doing? Muppets Take Manhattan or something before this. And there's nothing like the Muppets in the whole world. I, I mean, people keep trying to resurrect them and it's an incorrect gesture, I think. Um, I think the Muppets like live in their own time, like Richard Nixon. Like we can just end it. It's fine. They had their era. But th- the emotion that was able to come from what even Kermit the Frog is, is not... That is not a normal thing. That is something that is like a testament to artistry, right? Because we've all seen marionettes. They don't feel like anything. We've all seen hand puppets. They don't feel like anything. Um, But Kermit the Frog is everything. And he's so emotionally engaged. And so... By the time we're here and we have this enormous flapping pl- Venus flytrap plant and you feel something for it and about it, and it is so ugly, <laughs> I mean, tr- truly ugly. It's not even like a cool, um, pretty, I mean, it is incredibly cool, but it has veins on it. It's got lips. The lips are so disturbing. Um, <laughs> the puckering lips, you know, yeah, yeah. uh, It feels like something. And so, again, it's like funny, I don't know. Comedy, I'm not sure. Of course, there's music. It's like you said, it's this brilliant mashup, this total genre blending, tonal fuckery of, like, everything that Frank Oz seems interested in. It's like a chaos crash of creativity and style. Um, And I, I, again, I just want to say, like, for that to be out of... You know for that to be out of vogue is it's de- it's kind of depressing to me. Um, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, and these days the reference points we have are things like Stranger Things, which are just built on old parts, but they're not. Four. It doesn't. It never transcends its source. It's it's just. You know, I watched the first season and thought, oh, but this whole thing is Stephen King's Firestarter. So how is someone reading Cujo? How does Stephen King exist in this universe? <laughs> That's not cool. And then you watch E.T. again and you realize they're not even disguising the, the points that they're stealing from. Little Shop builds a new thing out of old parts. And yes. from the beginning, just you know, like, yeah, just that intro with the song and, and the, the knowing glances to camera. The, I mean, they were the chorus in the literally the chorus in the, in the stage play. But yeah. by not even trying to come up with a new formulation for that and just letting it be stagey instantly the confidence of the film is established. It's like, nope, this oh, is what so we're doing. So confident.
1: Yeah, so confident.
0: You're on board so or bold, you're not.
1: So bold, so bold. And the theme song to Little Shop of Horrors in particular, I think is uh, just beautifully written. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is the kind, like you said, it's the kind of writing where you think, oh my God, it's, it's theater. It's catchy. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, it's great lyricism. And, um, and, you know, in I, I think the when I think of remakes and when I think of, like, the way that we've all spilled over into, you know, pulling from the past and just kind of, like, grinding it through the mill, um, it's not that I think that everything good has already been made. I don't. Um, I just think, like, if you take the dunes side by side, I mean, there's just one I want to look at. And there's just one I don't want to look at. Now, does that mean that it's which one has, I don't know, maybe more stay power or more uh, dignity or elegance? I mean, again, not the question. It's just what the original Dune looks like. That needs to be preserved somehow. Um, And reimagining it is a is a failure in creativity. It's not like an exercise in creativity. Uh, make a different sand movie. You want to show some sand? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, I don't. I almost don't understand. It's like you're taking everything out of it that is falling apart and janky. And the jankiness of certain films, certainly of Little Shop of Horrors, certainly of Beetlejuice, like. It is this janky quality, this derpiness, this falling apartness, this creativity, this hand, the hand of the filmmaker. Um, That does not need to be corrected. That is not about, uh, let's do it with better CG this time. Let's do it with more money. Let's do it with better actors like, sure, you can find someone better than Sting. Of course you can. Um, But I don't know that that should be your internal logic. And it's like you said, I mean, who would recast Little Shop? It's like, you could. It's just like why, you know, Channing Tatum would probably get the dentist part, you know, because he could (laughs) sing and dance. Um, And he'd be great, maybe. He'd be great, maybe. But I don't know why, you know. And so I like this movie because it lives in its time. And can be appreciated in its time. And I don't think anyone's coming for it. Um, I get the impulse to come for it because I have the impulse to come for it. Like, I would love to be gifted the uh, opportunity, but what would I I do? (laughs) You know what I mean? I would just do the same thing.
0: (laughs) A shot for shot shot remake. (laughs) I can see it. I think the fun of it would be in holding the casting sessions. Right. Like sure. that would be, it would be, it would be a great thought experiment to get there and then just shut it down. Sure. Cause yeah, you're like, there's no, there really isn't anybody now who can capture the sweetness and sadness that, that Moranis pulls off. Like he just, I, I could,
1: maybe I mean, I your could, other Canadian, uh, brethren, Jay Baruchel, who I like quite a bit, um, who is like a very sweet sort of like, can do dorky very well. But he you're right. I mean, Moranis is his own thing.
0: Yeah, I think Jay would actually be terrified to hear that he was even being considered. <laughs> uh, I, I know Come him just on. enough to know how uncomfortable <laughs> it would make him to be compared to Moranis. But just because I like, he just doesn't see himself as that level of talent. But I, he ab- he absolutely is. But yeah, no, he's. I had never even thought like that would be real. He's forty now, so maybe he's aged out of it. But.
1: Well, you have to de-age I, him. I mean, it's a whole yeah. thing. I mean, yeah, it's a whole it's just process. Way you know? too
0: expensive at this
1: point. <laughs> yeah, he needs dots all over his face. You got to like Irishman him out. I mean, that, that's the other problem is no one would let you do it on a backlot. You would have to do the thing where you're on the city streets in New York, which would be uh, in, in, in and of itself a headache. And again, uh, taking the puppets out would be what? Uh, what a shame. No, no. That that would be
0: yeah. There's just it is like it's it's so weird to see a film that's set in 1960 be so of its time in 1986. Now that it can't be replicated, but that is sort of the the miracle of it, isn't it?
1: How cool! It's like when the 80s were doing 40s movies or 40s looks, um, and they would do them like they were 80s. It's a hard thing to describe because it's hypnogagia. It's like you almost can't describe what makes it its own time in the fact that it's a still period in its time. Um, it's like a memory. Yeah. Like you said, it's like a filmmaker creating a memory um, and they can't help, but still have these like 80s silhouettes and these 80s colors. They just can't help it. It's what they're drawn to. So the 80s creates these, 50s and 60s movies that are just impossibly of their own time like cry baby which i think is another movie where when you look at it you're like that is not what they're trying to do with something like pleasantville right like that they're not trying to be like it's the 50s let's walk away john waters is trying to do something that is his own time um and then therefore it becomes like a like a 90s movie like <laughs> it feels <laughs> like a feedback yeah. loop
0: yeah i mean yeah. Hair, hairspray yeah. as well really right yeah. because the hairstyles are accurate kind of but then they're also demented in his specific vision and so you get this sort of taffy pulled version of whatever period he wants to play in
1: yeah certainly certainly i mean i i hope nobody remakes the early tim burton movies i hope he doesn't remake them which is our which should be our greatest fear um i hope that they remain untouched But who could not come for Edward Scissorhands? I mean, that is just one of the most brilliant movies that that deserves to live forever. And no one can ever let the things that deserve to live forever just stay.
0: (laughs) Everybody's got
1: to get those and like gut them like fish, you know?
0: Yeah. Now it'd be an eight part miniseries of a Hulu show about him.
1: (laughs) Developing <laughs> developing his
0: landscaping talent for two yes, episodes. exactly.
1: He runs a barber shop. He's like doing everyone's hair. <laughs> They're like more content, more Edward. You're like, Ugh. ah, he yeah. doesn't have very much to offer, you know.
0: <laughs> We're laughing, but someone's, this is going to conjure it. <laughs> uh, but before we i i don't want to lose out on on having you here to talk about your thing as well because i was the the question that leads us out of the podcast is always the same which is you know like what of the film you chose have you borrowed or stolen from or, or outright lifted and obviously there's a there's a continuum between this and please maybe please because you've also made a film that is sort of a musical and sort of not and sort of a commentary on the present by sort of being in in the past and and you've built a world that is entirely your own and populated it as you see Thank fit. You. So did you pull on anything from Little Shop specifically or is it just always of, there?
1: Of course. I mean, it's, it's a film I go back to all the time and I, I just look at, you know, you can watch that movie with the sound off and it has the same quality, um, the qualities of theater, the qualities of a musical. It's beautiful. It's dark and light. Um, it's it's, it's such a thing to show a production designer always it's art direction, like on high. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me personally, it's everything we've been saying. It's, it's the, it's like my time doing another time, doing another time, doing another time. Like you said, that feedback loop, and it's borrowing from musicals and it's borrowing from classic themes. Um, but living now, um, because I have no interest in making Carol and I have no interest in making films that explore uh, homosexuality or or gender uh, in and of that era like I live now and I want to be a contemporary filmmaker but I like other periods um, and so if I want like you said of Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands if I want a beehive I want like the biggest beehive. I mean, I want my beehive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what I take from Little Shop. It's like extremity within period, and not being these perfect museum quality, um, you know, replications of the past, but but motivating the past through another lens so that it can live again um and you know hoping of course that you can create your own color palette and you can create your own sense of style um i i worship the style of a little shop of horrors and i don't say that lightly um it is a sort of like in a uh, synagogue for me <laughs> i i worship it certainly um so you know it To me, that is like a high form of uh, artifice and uh, the faux reality that I'm trying to get at. So um, it's just always a good movie to have on in the background to remind yourself how to stay inspired and to be a world builder.
0: My thanks to Amanda Kramer, whose own Celebration of Artifice, Please Baby Please, is available right now on digital and on demand. And you should definitely check it out. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. Amanda's not on Twitter or Instagram, but you can find both cuts of Little Shop of Horrors on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment, and streaming on HBO Max and DirecTV in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. And hey, we made it. Happy New Year.